When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi. Siri. Welcome to High Theory. In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory. I'm Sharonik Boshu. And I'm Kim Adams. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself. Today, I'm speaking with Roanne Cantor about world literature. Roanne, can I ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners? My name is Roanne Cantor. I am an assistant professor appointed in an English department. Technically, my field is what's called global English, but because I often write about and teach a lot of literature that wasn't originally written in English, I actually prefer to think about myself as a comparative literature person. That's the field that I trained in. And increasingly, I actually describe my work as world literature. So tell us, what the heck is world literature? Well, if only I knew, right? (laughs) So in fact, the most famous book probably written about the subject of world literature has the title, What is World Literature? That's David Damrosch's book from the early 2000s. It's a good question. We still haven't solved it. But there's two ways of answering the question. The first is a historical view about how people have tended to describe world literature as a body that talks to itself, a coherent idea of a tradition of literature. And the other one is an idea of what its uses are. I think we're going to get into that a little later. Why would we want something called? world literature. If you take the Damrosch approach, then world literature is any kind of literature that for him circulates out of its original culture and language of origin and is transformed by that circulation. And I think that that's very rough and ready. Many people criticize that concept, but in a lot of ways it kind of works. And it works especially for what I end up working on in terms of world literature. But when we think about the history of world literature, that's when it gets a little complicated. This is a term that's often tied to Goethe, Goethe wrote about this idea of wilt literature, world literature is the sort of English translation, as kind of merging East and West. And for him, it's based on this reading of a Chinese novel, which he then kind of applies a lot of weird and, you know, surprise, surprise, Orientalist imaginaries to. And so a lot of the the treatments of world literature as a concept 
take very seriously this as a singular origin point or some sort of like European collectionist uh, curatorial desire as a singular historical origin point for the concept of world literature that then kind of overdetermines its uses in the present. So when we talk about world literature and we look at like the big names who are out there trying to define this term in the last 20 years, we have a lot of imaginaries of a library, especially a public library. Uh, and the way that books circulate in and out of a library as being an image for world literature. So like Venkat Mani, for example, uses that image. We have the idea of a museum. So Emily Apter uses the idea of the British Museum and the way that the British went and like stole the Elgin marbles, for example, as this kind of rapacious vision of world literature as a curatorial experience. And then we have also sort of images of an airport bookshop, an image of world literature is just being like cheap bestsellers that are, you know, of questionable quality and that people just read to pass the time in their cosmopolitan endeavors. I love those three images of the like library, the museum and the airport bookshop, because I think they imply three different images of the world. Very much so. How do I use world literature or how do you use it? In terms of how I use world literature, I guess it's, I'm trying to sort of open it up other spaces to talk about what world literature could be. And I literally mean that in terms of, of spatial imaginaries, because what cool. strikes me is that all of those imaginaries and some other ones I didn't mention, like in the South Asian case, we often have these opening images of pavement booksellers. So people who are selling books in English when they themselves don't speak English, and they're of a very different class than the imagined readership for those books. So that again, is another image that tells us about a market or it tells us about a sort of cultural space, but one that's very public. And the problem is that these institutional and public imaginaries of like what world literature is, they can tell us about certain histories, but they don't tell us what world literature is for. And if it's such a crappy concept, as a lot of these imaginaries sort of end up framing it, if it's such a problematic concept, well, like, why are we using it? And why would anybody use it? So there's a wonderful essay by Susan Sontag called The World as India that I refer to in my book. A lot of the essay is just about how she kind of passionately attached to world literature as a young reader, as a way of imagining herself into a different kind of community than the community that she had grown up in, which was a sort of insular American community. And that is actually the way that a lot of very differently situated readers and writers relate interpersonally or privately to a concept of world literature. That is that they use it first to make an argument that is in fact a counter argument, an argument against some other vision that reading and sort of cultural consumption and literature are telling them, some other collective that literature is telling them that they're supposed to be a part of. And often mm. that contrary reading is one that we might think of as like, you know, politically progressive, right? Because okay. often the traditions that we're taught are our own traditions are really narrowly construed and they're really committed to nationalism or they're committed to really constraining visions of authenticity. And so reading beyond those boundaries is really politically positive in a lot of ways. So the project that I just finished that's a, about the way that certain people very materially used a concept of world literature has to do the, with the way that South Asian authors, so authors from India and Pakistan specifically, use readings of Latin American literature and translation in order to break out of, out of this really frustrating binary between having to write in a particular local language that maybe wasn't the language that they were raised speaking or wasn't the language they felt particularly connected to, wasn't the language they were educated in, and having to write in English, which is a, a colonial language and all the baggage that apparently comes from English, specifically the baggage of accepting all the ideological weight of the English canon, 
If you imagine instead that what you're doing is writing a world literature in English, and that even though English is the medium of your expression, it's not this sort of cultural milieu of your expression. Mm -hmm. You can resignify what it means to be an English language author in this day and age by using this tool of world literature. And so the book essentially explores all these fascinating and really oddball ways that really, really different types of authors drew on a Latin American tradition to try and do that. What I'm hearing is that maybe there's a way in which readers use world literature, which is connected to this world-making function of the novel. And there's a, a way in which writers use world literature, which is connected to the question of canon and of language and how one breaks from that. That is true. Those are also related projects, and they're also related to the project of scholarship. So the act of imagining oneself as a reader, as participating in a larger community, is not unrelated from how we imagine ourselves as writers, as participating in a tradition. Very few writers, almost none, are sort of sui generis. We always write in relationship to texts that we have read, and we usually write with an imaginary of who is going to read us. Those imaginaries of what we're coming from and where we're going, which are shared by both readers and writers, but are particularly necessary for writing, those imaginaries can be world literature imaginaries, they can be global English imaginaries, they can be sort of all different kinds of traditions, but they actually are all kind of undergirded by some idea of a readership, which we might also think of as a tradition. As a practitioner, as a scholar, we end up situated by and large in national language literature departments. And again, my position as somebody who works on global English, literally what they asked me when I interviewed for my position is, what is global English? I was like, girl, I don't know. What is global English? <laughs> so usually we understand languages to be tied to a nation. In terms of colonial languages like English, they very much obviously aren't. But nor is there an intrinsic relationship between all the different places that ended up speaking English because of what are fundamentally quite different experiences of colonialism or imperialism or neo-imperialism or sort of other kinds of educational prospects or economic prospects that bring people into speaking English. So world literature as a critical term is actually potentially a way of unsettling the idea that some of these traditions are intrinsically related and pushing for the idea that in fact, especially in the contemporary world, there is just as much relationship between literary traditions that originated in different languages or regions as there are between literatures that we imagine to be more self-contained. What is the role of translation in relation to global literature? It's the engine that makes it run, but it's also the okay. engine, by the way, when we're looking at India, which is profoundly multilingual. Translation mm. between languages is what makes a nation run, right? The idea of nations being matched up perfectly with languages is a very European idea. It's very, like, it's a specific period of European history. So it's not even like, you know, a Western idea. It's just like this one really actually idiosyncratic moment in European thinking that yeah. produces nationalism where every nation has just one language that it speaks. Like, actual Europeans are nothing like that, for example. But especially in a place like India, the plan for the Indian constitution and the independent nation of India was that it was always like just about to transition to 
Hindi or Hindustani or some sort of um, other language as the primary language in which government was going to be conducted. And then it was so logistically difficult to get everybody on board with that plan that they just scrapped it after a while. English has kind of remained in this, this link language or translational position. And that happens at the level of literature too. The sort of national literary body of India, the Sahitya Akademi, uses translations into English as a way of promoting, let's say, like Malayali literature to Hindi speakers, which is problematic, by the way. <laughs> but like, yeah. but that ends up being the realities. Even within countries, you still actually have this need for translation. So it's not even just a world literature thing. This is true in a very, very, very different way. But this is also true about the multilingualism that we forget as part of Latin American literatures as well, because there are much more like kind of clearly demarcated hierarchical relationships between Spanish and then indigenous languages in Latin America. Let me ask you our big question, which is how will world literature save the world? Oh, well, like it won't, right? <laughs> um, so this is Gloria Fisk's argument. I say that really often, you know, I say it in a cheeky way, but I think it's actually important. Gloria Fisk writes this book called The Good of World Literature. And the last chapter of, and that's a great book. The last chapter of that book is like a really strong polemic with the arguments in the field of world literature. And essentially what she says is like, we as literary scholars, have this kind of persistent fantasy that almost anything that we could do could have almost any positive impact in the world, you know, outside of the classrooms, hopefully, that we're teaching in or a few people read our books. But we invest literature, which is fundamentally an aesthetic form and a form of entertainment, with all of this, like, energy that it isn't necessarily set up to hold. And especially when we're talking about the scale of the world and the problems of the scale of the world, we're just like way too excited to lard those poor books. They're not that big, right? <laughs> With all this energy that they're not really the appropriate vehicle for. I feel that argument in my bones. So part of me is just like, y'all, like, let it go. It doesn't have to save the world. <laughs> yeah. But there are other scholars that in really interesting ways have thought about what literature is capable of doing in its own sphere, what its particular affordances are. Now, that's a word that I'm taking from Carolyn Levine. I'm not as interested in her perspective on that. But somebody like Peng Chea or Dibjani Ganguly in different ways are thinking about how do literatures by imagining the world in different ways or proposing different constructions of association within a world actually change potential relations among. So if we imagine world literature not so much as the greedy collector of all the different curios, a sort of like wonder closet for the 21st century, if we imagine it instead as, I almost want to say as a different kind of closet where you like try on these different subjectivities, if you imagine like what it feels like against your skin to be up close and personal with somebody really different or somewhere really different, that actually can have really interesting effects. If world literature has any role in bettering the world, let alone saving it, I think it would be in that sense of actually like opening up a space to really unsettle and reconstruct the way that we imagine inhabiting the world which I think like we desperately fucking need. <laughs> I think that's an excellent note to end on. Sure. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming and speaking with us. Thank you for having me. It was super fun. And thank you for listening to High Theory. If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, Patreon, or wherever you get your podcast fix. Sharonik Bosu manages our social media presence. Owen Quinn composes our theme music, and Kim Adams and Sharonik Bosu edit our audio. 
You can also find us at hightheory.net. We hope you have a highly theoretical day.